Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Bringing back the classics this morning. That's good. Days of Elijah. And it's appropriate, too. We're continuing on our 12-week summer series called Saints and Sinners. In this series, we're looking at various biblical characters whose lives were messy and broken. And through their stories, we're seeing how God lovingly meets us where we are and works with us despite our past, our lack of faith, our sin, our doubts, our age and limitations. He's simply looking for people who will give him their heart and trust him with their life. And in this grace and God's grace and our willingness to yield to his spirit, the Lord works uh, in us and works us into his grand story of redemption. So far in this series, we've reflected on the lives and stories of Abraham, of Jacob, Moses, Rahab, and Esther. And this morning, we're giving attention to the prophet Elijah. Elijah, in a sermon entitled, Zealous for God. But before we go any further, let's pray and prepare our hearts uh, to receive, our ears to hear what the Lord has for us today. There's some heavy themes in the message today. Pray for me. Pray for yourselves. Pray for each other. Father, your word is truth. Set us free by your truth. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be near us, real to us, present with us, Lord. Help us to hear your voice, to discern the voice of Jesus from the Father of lies. We give ourselves to you, Lord. We humble ourselves before you as your willing and obedient servants. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you would, please turn with me to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 16 is where we'll pick up in a few minutes. 1 Kings chapter 16, that's in toward the first part of the Old Testament. As you're turning there, let me just say a little bit about the background and the context of what we're going to be looking at today here in 1 Kings. This is the time of the divided kingdoms. You see the map there on the screen to help you visualize this. You have the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. You see, 1 and 2 Samuel, you may recall, tells us the story before the books of Kings, tells us the story of the united monarchy. You recall that begins with Saul. God didn't want them to have an earthly king, but they begged for it. They wanted to be like the other nations of the world. Remember Samuel the prophet's very disappointed in this, and God says, what are you pouting about? (laughs) They've rejected me, not you. So Saul doesn't go well. David goes a little bit better. We'll look at him next Sunday, Uh, but certainly a broken man himself. And there are all sorts of problems. With the United Monarchy, Saul, David, and then his son Solomon, and then certainly after that, Rehoboam, which is Solomon's son, is going to provoke a revolt, and the kingdom is going to split. This is why we have the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And so Jeroboam is the first king in Israel. Uh, first and second kings tell us the stories of these kings that follow, and it's mostly a disaster. You say, well, why? Well, there are lots of reasons for that. Idolatry being primary. Um, what we'd call syncretism. So that would be mixing the worship of Yahweh with other pagan idols, other 
other ways of thinking. Uh, materialism, that's a problem. Overtaxation of the people, starting with Solomon, that was a problem. Oppression of the poor, and of course the immorality of all of these kings. So God raises up, in response to this, he raises up prophets, both in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom, to be what we might call covenant watchdogs, as Tim Mackey says, covenant watchdogs uh, during this whole period. They call people to repent of their idolatry and to repent of their injustice, to return to Yahweh, to return to the law, and to keep the leaders in check. So they, they hold the kings accountable for their actions. This is why God raised up the prophets. And this is how he judged the kings through the prophets. Number one, do they worship God alone? That's the first one. Do they worship God alone? Number two, have they rid Israel, God's people of idolatry? And number three, are they faithful overall to the covenant? All right, do they worship God alone? Have they rid Israel of idolatry? Are they faithful to the covenant? And based on this criteria, right, eight for 20 kings, eight for 20 were faithful in the southern kingdom of Judah, and zero for 20 in the northern kingdom of Israel. Folks, these are dark times. And so while the prophet did at times foretell the future, we sometimes we think prophets are foretelling the future, they did some of that, but mostly that's not what the job of a prophet was. Mainly they embody the presence of God and they, they speak with the authority of God, especially in times of unfaithfulness, trouble, and of darkness. That's the role of the prophet. No, we still have prophets today, I think so, but we don't have time uh, to get into that. So, by 1 Kings chapter 16, which we're about to start reading in, this is five generations after the, the monarchy split. There's plenty of all of these things that are happening. These are, as we just sang, the days of Elijah, all right? 1 Kings chapter 16 we're going to begin there with verse 29. Ahab, son of Omri, began to rule over Israel in the 38th year of King Asa's reign in Judah. Right? He reigned in Samaria 22 years. Again, this is Omri. Now, a few verses before, we're told that Omri was a bad dude. You would expect that. All the kings of the northern kingdom are. He continued the sins of Jeroboam, the text said. Remember, that's the first king of the northern kingdom. Now, what were the sins of Jeroboam? Uh, the Bible tells us that he created rival temples to Jerusalem. So once the kingdom split, Jeroboam creates, where's the temple? It's in Jerusalem. But he creates a rival temple in the northern kingdom, and actually two places that he sets up for worship. And he puts golden calves there. Now, where have we heard of golden calves before? right? The base of Mount Sinai. Now, he, he gets creative and strategic with this because he inscribes the name Yahweh on them. You know, we, we still have this kind of thinking and behavior today, right? Um, something that's evil we say is good. It's sort of a way to, to kind of meet people where they are, to get everybody on board with what he's doing. You see, he created these rival temples and these, set up these two golden calves in Bethel and Dan. He worried that people in the north traveling down to the temple in Jerusalem, that that posed a threat to his power and his sovereignty, right? That maybe eventually they would turn against him as they journeyed down into the south. And so he gets politically strategic. He mixes the worship of God with the symbols of the worship of demons. You say, the worship of demons? Did they believe they were doing that? No, they didn't. They probably didn't even have a, a, a fully developed uh, theology of demons at this point. But you know, the early church fathers, they say this is exactly what was going on. Tertullian, I know, was one. Uh, Justin Martyr was one who said that all of the worship of idols have actually been the worship of demons. And so the times when these false gods seem to do some things, it's actually demonic power behind it. Not God, of course. So Jeroboam knew that, the, he knew about how the power of idols and images had to comfort people and give them a sense of security. 
mean, ultimately, that's why they fashioned the calf at the base of Sinai. You remember, Moses goes away on the mountain for 40 days. And they need an image to bring them comfort. If God is with us, we need to see it. And so they think, well, we'll just fashion this image, and God doesn't like that. No, of course not. He still doesn't like it. And so these are the sins of Jeroboam that Omri and his son, who we're going to talk about today, the wicked king Ahab, continue and further in Israel. And these are the sins that would eventually lead the nation into judgment and exile. Verse 30, Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel. So Ahab married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians. And he began to bow down in worship of Baal. Now, who is Jezebel? If you grew up in the church, you may know a little bit. Let me refresh your memory. Jezebel is the daughter of the Phoenician king. Now, Phoenicia is, is an area along the Mediterranean coast of the old land of Canaan. So she's the daughter, she's a princess of a Phoenician king who's also the high priest of the Canaanite god Baal, or you may have heard it pronounced Baal. <laughs> I'm going to say Baal. Her family was zealous for Baal, so much so their names reflect it. Uh, Eth Baal, her father, his name literally means I'm with Baal. <laughs> well, there you go. And Jezebel, which means Baal exalts, or it may even mean, scholars say, Baal is my husband. Very fitting for the story we're about to read. Remember this, because it appears that Jezebel only becomes wife to King Ahab to form an alliance, which was pretty common in that day to do, right? Mary, um, the daughter of another king, which creates an alliance with that nation, which God forbid them to do, you recall, between this coastal king of Sidon and Israel. And so when Jezebel becomes queen, she goes immediately to work in turning Israel entirely away from Yahweh to her gods. You would expect that, a princess of the high priest of Baal. So she stops at nothing to do that. Look at verse 32 and 33. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. Now, what you're beginning to see here are the roots of why in Jesus' day, they didn't like Samaria. They didn't want to go through Samaria. We'll come back to that. So, remember this. So, he set up there a temple, an altar for Baal, and then he set up an Asherah pole. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. Now, also remember, this has been five generations. Folks, God is patient. Five generations. So, who is Baal and Asherah? And what is an Asherah pole? Uh, to the ancient Canaanites and coastal tribes, Baal is pretty much the equivalent of Zeus in Greece, Right? So when it comes to him being the, uh, it, the ultimate divine power over earth, sky, storm, so he's, gonna, he's the one that controls the rain and the sea. So essentially, Baal is what we'd call a male fertility god, often depicted sitting on a throne uh, with a head of a bull. And in times of crisis, Baal's followers sacrificed their firstborn children to appease the God and to prosper themselves and their land. And he also has a counterpart. And her name is, you guessed it, Asherah. Asherah is a fertility goddess who's often depicted totally nude. Now, all of I'm about to say to you, I've tried to make PG, okay? Even the pictures. But you just imagine this. She's often depicted totally nude, sometimes pregnant, with exaggerated bodily features. And Asherah poles, which were basically phallic symbols carved out of trees or stone. I've got an example there that you can see. They're set up all over the land as worship sites for the people of Israel. And so although she was believed, Asherah was believed to be Baal's mother, she was also his mistress. And worshipers believed they could, they could influence the gods' actions by performing the behavior they wished the gods to de demonstrate, you see? Believing that the sexual union of Baal and Asherah produced fertility, 
their worshipers engaged in immoral ritual sexual activity to cause the gods to join together and bless their land. This became the basis for religious prostitution later on where the priest or a male member of the community who represented Baal and the priestess of the, or the female members of the community represented Asherah. Are you getting this picture? Remember church, we become like that which we worship. Always. And idols are still with us today. We've just become more sophisticated in our evil. Needless to say, Jezebel's wicked influence, so her her sexual immorality and her idolatry and her domination, which we'll see over Ahab, will lead to the persecution of those who worship Yahweh and, of course, to the moral degradation of God's people. And so as you're probably aware, Jezebel is more than just a historical figure. Her name lives on as a metaphor, right, for evil and wickedness. But more than that, I believe there is a spirit of Jezebel that is still at work in our world today. And I'll say more about that toward the end of the message. Let's get back to the text. Here we are, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah, who was from Tishbe in Gilead, so basically we don't really know for sure where Tishbe is. It's a very rural area, and Gilead is the valley of the Jordan River. He told King Ahab, this is the first time uh, Elijah shows up, by the way, okay, for, for his ministry. We don't know much about Elijah before this. And this is what God tells him to tell the wicked king Ahab. As surely as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook, which is another word for that is a wadi These are like seasonal little creeks, okay? He says, stay there uh, where it enters the Jordan. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. Now, already you're kind of starting to see um, echoes of the Exodus. God provided for them in the wilderness. God's going to provide for Elijah here in the wilderness at this brook. So Elijah did as the Lord told him and camped beside Kareth Brook east of the Jordan. So remember, we're in a drought now. God's holding back the rain. What, what you should notice right away is why would God do this? Remember what Baal is in charge of or what they believe he's in charge of, the rain. You see, God is doing something similar here as he did in the, in the uh, Egypt, Egypt story, the Exodus story. The plagues of Egypt were all rebukes of Egyptian gods to show them that your gods don't have power over our God. One of the main lessons of the Old Testament is there's one God. He's the ever-living, only-living, covenant-making God. All other gods are false or demons that people worship. So verse 5, Elijah did as the Lord told him. Verse 6, the ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. But after a while, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. Notice what Elijah does. Verse 8, the Lord said to Elijah, go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. Now, remember who's from Sidon? Jezebel. Her father was king there. So this is Jezebel's territory. Now remember, what did I say about prophets? Prophets embody the message that they're proclaiming. They embody the presence of God. Elijah's leaving Israel. God's sending Elijah out of Israel. What, is this, what does this symbolize? The Spirit of God is withdrawing. But there's another thing that's going to happen here as well. So, he says, go live there in this village near the city of Sidon. I've instructed a widow there to feed you. Now, Zarephath is in Jezebel's home territory, as I said. It, Elijah isn't just hiding from Ahab as he waits on God's timing. There, there is that. But he's also embodying God's presence, leaving Israel during the drought. And he instead goes to a pagan widow for refuge whom God is going to bless. If we had time and we kept reading the story here, we would see that Elijah asks for water and bread. The woman tells him that she only has enough left for her and her son. In fact, she was about to cook it up, prepare the meal, eat it, and die. Okay? That was it. So, I mean, think about the audacity. Prophet comes and says, well, I want what you have left. 
but this woman still has faith enough to give it. Elijah asks her to trust him and to trust Yahweh. He tells her to prepare a meal for all of them, and the food will just keep appearing. As it does, it keeps appearing in her containers. It's like Mary Poppins, right? It's just, just things just keep coming out. And it lasts until Yahweh sends the rain. So Elijah uses the divine power given to him by God to perform a miracle. And then the second miracle comes when the woman's son gets ill and dies. So Elijah's still there. Her son dies. Elijah stretches himself over the boy three times. Three times. And God raises the woman's son. You see any signpost there? Three raising. She then believes in Elijah and seemingly his God. And you may recall that Jesus references this story in Luke chapter 4. He goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, right? He went back. He read a messianic passage from Isaiah 61. I've I've come to proclaim freedom for the captives, the the year of Jubilee. This is a very messianic passage. And, And he says, today this scripture reading has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words... That's me. I'm the guy. Now, they don't like this message. You remember this? So they start to rebuke Jesus. And as my uncle from East Texas says, this really burns his rear. Uh, When he likens their unbelief, it burns their rear, because he likens their unbelief to those in Israel in the time of Elijah. He's saying, in other words, you're just like them. (laughs) Jesus is a smart guy. He's God. If he was concerned about winning fans, Jesus would probably say different things. But that's not Jesus' concern. Anyway, side note. Because he pointed out how Elijah went to a Gentile widow outside of Israel to find faith because God's people lacked it. They were were furious. It was apparently enough for them to want to throw Jesus off the town cliff. Back to the text. On to the main story for today. Look at 1 Kings chapter 18. Later on in the third year of the drought, Yahweh said to Elijah, now go and present yourself to King Ahab. Did you notice some time passed? So when he originally told Elijah what he was to do, he sent word to Ahab, but he's kind of hiding out. He's hanging out. Now he's going to go face him personally. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Now, there's going to be some parallels here between Elijah and later on the prophet Jonah. When God tells Jonah to go to his enemy, Jonah goes the opposite direction. Remember that? We preached on that not long back. Keep that in mind. So, Elijah is faithful. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't question. He goes. Now, that would have been scary for him. That would have been scary, but he does it. Meanwhile, the famine had become very severe in Samaria. So, Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace... This is not the Obadiah, the book, the prophet Obadiah. This is a different Obadiah. Obadiah was a devoted follower of the Lord. So he's trying to get along in this wicked administration as best he can. Look what Obadiah actually does. Once when Jezebel had tried to kill all the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had hidden a hundred of them in two caves. He put 50 in one cave and 50 in the other. He supplied them with food and water during this drought. So Ahab said to Obadiah, we must check every spring and valley in the land to see if we can find enough grass to save at least some of my horses and mules. Forget the people. Feed the mules. Feed the horses. So they divided the land between them. Ahab went one way by himself. Obadiah went another way. And look what happens. As Obadiah was walking along, he suddenly saw Elijah. (laughs) There's the prophet of God appears. He saw Elijah coming toward him. Obadiah recognized him at once and bowed to the ground before him. Is it really you, my Lord, the prophet Elijah, he asked. Yes, it is, Elijah replied. Now go and tell your master, that would be Ahab, Elijah is here. Now look look at this, this is kind of funny. He says, oh, sir, Obadiah protested. What harm have I done to you that you're going to send me to my death to the hands, by the hands of Ahab? For I swear by, the, by Yahweh, your God, that the king has searched every nation and kingdom on earth from end to end to find you. And each time he's been told Elijah isn't here. King Ahab forced the king of that nation to swear to the truth of his claims. And now you say, go and tell your master Elijah is here. But as soon as I leave you, the Spirit of the Lord is going to carry you away to who knows where. 
right? It's like you, you prophesied this word three years ago and then you just disappeared on us. Are you going to do that to us again? You want me to go to tell Ahab you're here and then we won't be able to find you and I'm going to die. When Ahab comes, he cannot find you. He will kill me. Yet I have been a true servant of the Lord all my life. Has no one told you, my Lord, (laughs) about the time when Jezebel was trying to kill the Lord's prophets? I hid a hundred of them in two caves and supplied them with food and water. And now you say, go and tell your master Elijah is here? Sir, if I do that, Ahab will certainly kill me. But look what Elijah says, verse 15. Elijah said, I swear by Yahweh Almighty, in whose presence I stand, I will present myself to Ahab this very day. So Obadiah went to tell Ahab that Elijah had come, and Ahab went out to meet Elijah. Now verse 17. Verse 17. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, So... Is it really you, you troubler of Israel? Now you think Ahab's got the power and you got this wicked wife, Queen Jezebel, behind him that Elijah might be afraid. Look what Elijah says. It's kind of like, hey, don't go sticking your finger in my face. I've made no trouble for Israel. You and your family are the troublemakers. You, you have refused to obey the commands of the Lord, and you've worshipped the images of Baal instead, troubler of Israel. You're the troublemaker. Now summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 400 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are supported by Jezebel. Folks, this is a showdown. He's basically saying, noon, high noon tomorrow in the street, you and me. Your God, my God. And he says, uh, actually the NIV says, uh, I just read from the New Living Translation, who supported Jezebel. Your translation may say, who eats at Jezebel's table. So he, he knows that Jezebel's really the, the demonic force behind all of this. And it's also interesting that these prophets, they're eating well while everybody else is suffering. Hmm. Well, where is Mount Carmel? Where is Mount Carmel? Here's a a modern day picture you can see on the screens there. Uh, It is situated along the Mediterranean uh, coast there, not far from Nazareth. Now, how many prophets of Baal and Asherah? Total, 850 prophets. Get this picture, 850 prophets against one eccentric prophet of God who's wearing camel skin and a leather belt around his waist. He probably doesn't smell that great. This guy could win the the, the alone show over and over again, right? And so it's 850 total prophets against one prophet of God with Ahab and many from Israel in the audience. He says, bring all of Israel. Now, it probably wasn't every single person, but there was going to be a large crowd there watching Verse 20, so Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel, and then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? Like you're riding the fence, right? If, if Yahweh is God, then follow him. None of this golden calves with Yahweh inscribed on it. None of this syncretism and the mixing of Yahweh worship with the idols of the world, with the immorality of the world. Acting like you don't know what the truth really is. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. Verse 22, Elijah said to them, I'm the only prophet of Yahweh who has left. Yeah, where are those other hundred that Obadiah hit? You know, you think this might be the time to say, hey, you want to come and help your your bro? But they don't come out. They're still in hiding. It's just Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Asherah. He says, I'm the only one who's left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now bring two bulls, and maybe because of the two golden calves, you know, or the two bulls that they, 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 they sacrifice and set up as worship places. But also, one's going to be for 
Baal and one is going to be for Yahweh. So the prophets of Baal, he said, may choose whichever one they wish and cut it into pieces, lay it on the wood of their altar, and without setting fire to it, I'm going to, he said, I'll prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood on the altar, but not set fire to it. So get this picture. Two altars, a bull on each, cut to pieces. Then call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of, of the Lord, right? The God who answers by setting fire to the wood is the true God. And all the people said, that sounds good to us. That, sound, that sounds like a game we can play. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you go first, for there are many of you, right? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's like, there's more of you, you go first, right? You go first, there's many of you. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it and call on the name of your God, but do not set fire to the wood. So they prepared one of the bulls and placed it on the altar, and then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime. These guys are shouting, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they started dancing, right? They started dancing, hobbling around the altar they had made. And about noontime, Elijah began mocking them. Listen to what he says. Hey, guys, I think you're going to have to shout louder. I don't think Baal can hear you. He scoffed. Surely he's a god, right? Perhaps he's daydreaming. Perhaps he's relieving himself. He went to the John. (laughs) Maybe he's away on a trip or maybe he fell asleep. Maybe he needs to be awakened. So they shout louder. You know, it's it's this this picture here. You know, it's... um, yeah, Proverbs says a dog always returns to its vomit, you know. It's, it's insanity. We, we keep doing the same things over and over, uh, and expecting different results. Uh, these people are just buckling down on it, right? They don't, they don't repent. They just keep going hard and fast with their idolatry, screaming louder and louder. It says, verse 28, they shouted louder and following their normal custom. And here's, look what they start to do now. They cut themselves. Now they're going to extremes. They cut themselves with knives and swords until the blood gushed out. Maybe Baal will see this. They raved all afternoon until the time of the evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response, no fire from Baal, right? Then Elijah called to the people. Now come over here. They all crowded around him as he, as he repaired the altar of the Lord. He repaired the altar of Yahweh that had been torn down because of the worship of the Baal and Asherah. He took 12 stones, one to represent each tribe of Israel, and he used the stones to rebuild the altar in the name of the Lord. It's almost like he's reinstituting the covenant worship of Yahweh. He dug a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about three gallons of water. He piled wood on the altar, cut the bull into pieces, laid the pieces on the wood. Then he said, fill four large jars with water, pour the water over the offering and the wood. He's going to drench this altar. (laughs) This is what he does. After he had done this, he said, do the same thing again. And when they had finished, he said, do it a third time. So they did as he said. And the water ran around the altar and even filled the trench. Folks, what's about to happen is a God thing. At the usual time for offering, the evening sacrifice. Well, first off, um, look at verse, uh, yeah, what verse we had? 30. We're verse 36. At the usual time for offering in the evening sacrifice, Elijah, the prophet, walked up to the altar and prayed, O Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and I am your servant, right? And I've been speaking on your behalf. The words I speak are true. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people will know that you are Lord, our God, and that you have brought them back to yourself. Do you see the zeal of Elijah? Have you ever prayed like that? Lord, don't let this, don't let this wickedness continue any longer. Vindicate your servants. Vindicate your servants. Reveal the truth. Verse 38, immediately the fire of Yahweh flashed down from heaven. Is it completely supernatural? Is, is this, is this a, a, a meteor? 
Whatever it was, it was real. They all saw it. It burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground. Get this picture. They fell face down on the ground. They cried out, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God. Yes, Yahweh is God. And then Elijah commanded, seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all, and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley, a river valley, and he killed them there. I told you this, is, this message is full of heavy themes. <laughs> um, what do we do with this? Well, we'll see what Jesus says about this a little bit later on. But one thing you'll notice is, did God tell him to do it? You have to notice that. God didn't tell him to do it. You see, one of the things that prophets seem to have, we even see this in the New Testament, is uh, one scholar I know would call it a principle of semi-autonomous power. That is, God gives a portion of his power to prophets. And And it's basically sort of like, here you go, use it with discretion. And not everybody always uses the power of God as they should. Now, I want us to just keep that in mind, and let's keep rolling here with the story. Then Elijah said to Ahab, go get something to eat and drink, for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel and bowed low to the ground and prayed with his face between his knees. We've seen people pray like this. He said to his servant, go and look out toward the sea. The servant went and looked. Now, what are they looking for? The rain right? Yahweh's God. They've all seen it. The prophets of all are dead. Now here comes the rain. He said, I don't see anything. Seven times Elijah told him to do this. Finally, the seventh time his servant told him, I see clouds the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. Elijah shouted, hurry to Ahab. Tell him, climb into your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. Soon the sky was black with clouds. A heavy wind brought a terrific rainstorm, and Ahab left quickly for Jezreel. Now, Jezreel was his capital at that time. And the Lord gave special strength to Elijah. He tucked his cloak into his belt, and he ran ahead of Ahab and his chariot all the way to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, notice here, Elijah believes, and he's acting like this, is the big turnaround for Israel. All of this signifies it. The prophets of Baal are dead. The people in attendance have a renewed faith in God. Ahab seems to be on board with the changes. He hasn't said anything. After this mighty display of God's power, and so Elijah even runs ahead of the king's chariot. Why is he doing this? He wants to get to the capital because the prophet always goes before the king. Why? To announce to the people, not just that the king is coming, but that Yahweh is in charge. The prophet is trying to go before the king, but then, well, look what happens next. Chapter 19, when Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. In the Hebrew, it kind of bubbles up out of the text. Ahab is kind of pouting here, and he goes to Jezebel as he will another time when it comes to Naboth and his vineyard. He didn't get what he wanted. And he knows he can get Jezebel to do the hard stuff. He knows he can get Jezebel to murder people. Now, folks, it's very clear over and over in this story, Ahab's a puppet. He's a spiritual doormat. He's passive. He's a weak man. And and whether it's his way of blaming all the bad stuff on his wicked Canaanite wife or using her to do what he can't bring himself to do. He's faithless, he's godless, and he's immoral. And while he may try to blame his wicked wife, God will hold him accountable all the same, to be sure. Verse 2, Jezebel sent this message, May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I've not killed you just as you killed them. Listen to that. Jezebel is furious. And folks, the devil is on the prowl. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and he fled for his life. Why, why is he afraid? He hadn't been afraid at this point. He knew something about Jezebel. This woman's evil. 
the devil working through her, but also Elijah's thinking, if things didn't turn around on Mount Carmel, if that didn't work, then what do I have working for me? What do I have going for me? You, can, you almost can pick up the human doubts. I mean, the, the, the very humanness. I mean, at this point, Elijah's almost seems supernatural. But now he's starting to seem like a human being. You see that? He was afraid. He fled for his life. He went to Beersheba. Now, this is a town in Judah. So that he's gone now and he's left the northern kingdom. He's in the southern kingdom. And he left his servant there. Now, Elijah's on his own. He went on alone into the wilderness, just like Israel. Traveling all day, he sat down under a solitary broom tree. Under a solitary broom tree. You can see a picture of that in the slides there, what a broom tree creates quite a bit of of shade. And he prayed that he might die. Now remember, who's the prophet comes after him, prays he would die? It seems Elijah has a little bit more reason to want to die. <laughs> he's been faithful. He's done everything God wants him to do. And still no success. He says, I have had enough, Yahweh. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who've already died. We now enter into another heavy theme. Sexual morality, violence, depression. Now, I, I don't think Elijah is suicidal. Um, I, I think I've experienced what Elijah has experienced, a little bit of it anyway. He's, he's definitely depressed. He's been faithful. He gave it his best. God showed his power on the altar Mount Carmel, right? Mountaintop experiences, we call them. The people had experienced the renewed faith in Yahweh. Revival seemed to be breaking out, but he's still on the run. I'm still on the run. Jezebel wants to kill me. Nothing's changed, it seems. This, this is not what Elijah expected at this point in his life and ministry. Elijah believed it was all going to go differently than it did. You ever been there? You thought it was going to go differently? You thought life would turn out differently? You thought the things that you did for God would, would put you in a different place? So this is not what he expected. And Elijah believed it was all going to turn out differently, and it didn't. And he feels that he's got nothing left. Look what he says. My ancestors are all dead. And we, we don't know exactly what does he mean. Like the prophets that came before him. Or is it possible, we don't know because we're not told much of his, his life before, before chapter 16, 17. Um, was his family killed by Ahab? And now he fears he's going to die too. You just put yourself in his sandals and imagine how Elijah must feel. Verse 5, then he laid down and he slept under the broom tree, but as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. See, God continues to provide for his people. He ate, he drank, and he lay down again. Let me just say, when we're fearful, when we're burned out, when we're depressed, we need three things. And you see it with Elijah. A touch from the Lord, two, proper food and hydration, and three, some good sleep in a cool place. <laughs> a whole sermon on that, folks. Touch from the Lord, proper food and hydration, good sleep in a cool place. We need spiritual and bodily health routines and rhythms, and we can see that here uh, in this text. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came again, touched him. And said, get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. You still have a ways to go, Elijah. It's it's interesting. Even now, God's guiding Elijah in this wilderness that he's experiencing. That's good. He got up, ate, drank. The food gave him strength to travel 40 days, 40 nights, 40 days, 40 nights. What's going on here? The replaying of the story of Israel. Jesus is going to spend 40 days 40 nights. He goes where? What's your text say? Mount Sinai. He's going back to where the covenant began. This is where Elijah's heading. He's not just fleeing to some random place. 
He's going back to Israel's first major encounter with God on the mountain of God. Verse 9. Verse 9, there he came to a cave and where he spent the night. But the Lord said to him, what are you doing here? Little things, little things. You should notice in the text. God doesn't say, what are you doing there? I'm over here. You're over there. He says, what are you doing here? God's in the cave with Elijah. God's in the darkness. God's in the depression and the fear with Elijah. Elijah replied, I have zealously... Serve the Lord God Almighty. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars. They've killed every one of your prophets. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. We, we know this is a fact. Sometimes in our darkness and our emotions and in, in the depth of our anxiety and fear, we exaggerate a little bit. Is he the only one? No, not really. But he feels that way. He feels that way. Go out and stand before me on the mountain the Lord told him. As as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by in a mighty windstorm. God's often in the wind. He hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast. The rocks were torn loose. Some of you know this story. God sends an earthquake. Then God sends the fire. Verse 13, Elijah heard it. He wrapped his face in a cloak. Hey, look, it wasn't the wind. It wasn't the earthquake. It wasn't the fire. It was a gentle whisper that Elijah hears God. It wasn't in the fantastic It wasn't in the entertainment. It was in the still, small voice. What does the scripture say? Be still and know that I'm God. It's almost as if God sits with Elijah and waits for Elijah to start thinking clearly, to feel refreshed, to be in a healthy place, to now hear his voice. And he's going to ask him again, again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And this time I can imagine the tears, maybe they've stopped. The breathing's returned to normal. He says, I have zealously served you, God. But the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars. They've killed every one of your prophets. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Then the Lord said, go back the same way that you came. All right? And then travel to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive there, anoint the king Hazel to be the king of Aram. And anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be the king of Israel. Anoint a new king. And anoint Elisha. He's going to be the new prophet. You're you're getting ready here. The Lord's telling Elijah to pass on the mantle of your ministry. I think in some way this is mercy. (laughs) This is the way God's responding to Elijah's desire to die and then he says verse 17 anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu and those who escape Jehu will be he says look violence upon violence God's going to deal with this I'll preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him Uh, just just a, a bonus here notice the path down to Sinai back to Damascus Did you know that Paul also said he was a zealous person for the Lord, killed the people of God, went to Arabia, some consider the Sinai Peninsula, back to Damascus, following the footsteps of Elijah. And notice what the Lord says here, 7,000 others, that is a remnant. This is a reminder, brothers and sisters, that God always preserves a remnant and uses dark days to call us out to separate the faithful from the idolaters, those who've been seduced by Jezebel and her demon gods to those who follow the Lord. In the next couple of chapters, we see that Elijah is faithful to do what God tells him to do. Ahab's evil continues. You know, one time it looked like he was going to fully repent, but he didn't. He, He continues despite many chances to repent. He's killed in battle. And when Jehu comes to town to overthrow the rest of the evil regime, Jezebel is thrown out a window and devoured by dogs. Elijah, like Moses to Joshua, is going to anoint and passes on his prophet's mantle to Elisha, as I said, who will do even greater things than Elijah. And so both of these men foreshadow John the Baptist. John the Baptist wore camel skin, leather belt, preached in the wilderness, fiery eccentric guy, huh? And who comes after? Elisha. Who comes after? Jesus. 
the Messiah. Despite his sins, his fear, and wanting to quit, God honors Elijah. If you keep reading, we don't have time today, but keep reading 2 Kings chapter 2, excuse me, verse 9 through 15, we read that God graciously and mysteriously, we sang about this earlier, allows Elijah not to see his worst fears come true, which was dying at the hands of the wicked. We're told that Elisha sees him ascend to God in a whirlwind after a great chariot of fire, symbolizing at that time God's ability, you see, and power to fight for his people. That's what Israel means. And though Elijah didn't have to die before ascending to heaven, (laughs) Jesus did. You see that? Jesus did. Our Lord fights for us differently than we might expect. And he's still concerned about the evil in our day. My friends, according to Jesus, according to Jesus, the spirit of Jezebel lives on. Lives on today. Listen to what the Lord says. This is in the book of Revelation. And uh, this is one of the seven letters to the churches of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verse 19 to 23, Jesus said through the prophet John, I know your deeds. I know your love and your faith as a church, your service and perseverance. I know that you're now doing more than you did at first. I give that to you. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Look what Jesus is doing. Jezebel's a metaphor. Now, maybe there was a person in the church of Thyatira who was doing this. We're not entirely sure, but clearly Jezebel still lives. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. Remember, five generations between Jeroboam and Ahab. I've given her time to repent, but she's unwilling. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. It's a reminder, folks. You may not see consequences right away. Give it time. I'll strike her children, that is her followers, dead. And then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. It's going to be some like hard words coming from Jesus, and they are. But let's be reminded then of how God works in his wrath. Paul said in Romans 1, God gives people over to the consequences of their sin. This is how God is judging. This is how God strikes. This is how God's vengeance plays out. It's, it's, it's called reaping what you sow. It's, it's a picture really of sort of God holding back the floodwaters. And once we've accrued up all of these sins and the wrath, God lets it go. And so we have to read this passage and ask, what ways might we still see this demonic Jezebel spirit seducing the church today? Are your toes ready? We want to tuck them under the pew. <laughs> I think we see it in a variety of ways, folks. We see it in the the sex and the violence as entertainment. And and many of us, we don't give a second thought to this. And I know I've been guilty of this as well. We we often lap it up, the sex and the violence on, on our screens without hesitation. We're free in Jesus. I don't want to be one of those fundamentalists. I can watch anything. We lap it up. We have lax attitudes towards the sacrificing of babies in the name of freedom and choice. The U.S. performs three quarters of a million abortions each year. How we become okay with that? I don't care what your party affiliation is. How do do we become okay with it? You see, the Jezebel spirit is still at work. You have to know the same ways that we sort of feel about when we're confronted with our sins, they felt the same way. They're like, what are you talking about? It's not that bad. We still, we still say Yahweh. We still, we still go, you know, and say Yahweh on Sundays. The Jezebel spirit seduces us to go against the created order, right? And, and the divine intention for human sexuality. Accepting Western culture's expressive individualism. 
Redefining Christian marriage as it's outlined in the New Testament. Rooting human identity and how you feel inside and who you're attracted to and who you want to sleep with instead of what the God of the universe says. He said, then of course there's things like adultery and, and you know, swingers, have you ever heard of them? Uh, polyamory is a big thing now. Easy, no-fault divorce, which you've had for a while. And you know, I think the greatest, maybe the greatest threat of all is our easy access to pornography. Personally, I think it ought to be a crime. Do you know Covenant Eyes, it's a a software you can put on your your computer uh, to keep you from viewing things that you don't need to be viewing, reports that 64% of Christian men, we're talking about the church, 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women, now those are the honest ones, right? They say, They watch porn at least once a month. Folks, we want revival in our land. We got to deal with that. We want renewal. We want to feel God's presence. We want to know the Lord like we've never known him before. We got to deal with that. We got to deal with Jezebel that's on the loose. All those cliques contribute to a $97 billion industry. $97 billion industry that fuels exploitation and human trafficking. Some of you have probably seen The Sound of Freedom. If you haven't, you should watch that. It talks about this, particularly with our children. And we, we need to see this. All these sexual sins, they're connected in some way. We like to think as Americans, it's just me. I'm not hurting anybody. It's just me. It's myself. I'm in my, I'm in my dark room by myself. I'm not but these things are connected, right? They're connected. You can think of it like a demonic Jezebel octopus with tentacles stretching all over American society and culture and beyond it in the darkest recesses of the world. It's like that black monster thing in Stranger Things. You've seen that. It's at work. It's Jezebel. Is God angry? How could God not be angry? Sure, God's angry at this. God's holy. It's interesting that some people, we judge God based on the morals and the values that he's given us. Right, We're, you, didn't get, you didn't come up with those on your own. He gave those to you. And God's a whole lot more holier than you and me. <laughs> the, the, so when I, you really think about the holiness of God and the depth and the depravity of man, what should floor you and you should really get hung up with is not the times where God gets angry and, and lets go of the floodwaters. It's that God would spare any of us. And he does. And he wants to. It's what the cross is all about. And so you can't see the beauty and the power, the love, the mercy, the grace of Jesus until you really get in tune with the depth and the depravity and the darkness and the ugliness and the grittiness and the hell that our sins have created. And it isn't to make you feel bad, it is to make you repent. (laughs) It is to make us repent. Stop looking to the world, start looking within. Start looking to the other political party and start looking in your own soul. God, help us. Yeah, he's angry, but he's holy and he's pure light. He burns against sin. It distorts his design for human sexuality and the blessing that it can bring. We can think we can take, we think we can take something that God created for good and just, well, I'll just do whatever I want with this and there won't be no consequences. So what does God expect? What does God expect of the church? And how are we to live in our dark days? Well, first, the God who looks like Jesus shows us what we shouldn't do. Here's a story with some allusions, that is with an A, allusions to Elijah. You may remember this story, Luke 9. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, remember Elijah was taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And of course, his own disciples didn't like like this because they knew it would probably be his end. And he sent messengers on ahead and he went into a Samaritan village, right? Northern Kingdom territory to get things ready. But the people there did not welcome him, right? So Jews and Samaritans didn't get along because of this old stuff that happened between the Northern and Southern Kingdom because he was headed for Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem, not the temple in Samaria, Right? And when the disciples James and John saw this, it reminded them of the story of Elijah. I mean, that's really what the text is telling us. And so what do they say to Jesus? Hey, 
Great idea. You want to call fire down from heaven and burn those folks up? How does Jesus respond? It says in verse 55, Jesus turned and rebuked them. The earliest manuscripts actually add on to this verse and say, you don't know, Jesus saying, you don't know what spirit you are of. I didn't come to destroy life. I came to save it. Those are the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament. So, so see, look at this. Being zealous, as Saul of Tarsus learned, and being passionate for God and his will for the world is good, but it's about being zealous in the way of Jesus, who loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him. He, he told us to look at the log in our own eye, the big honking log, before you pick at the sawdust in somebody else's. He taught us to love the sinner and hate our own sin. And therefore, we, you see, we, we can with that leave vengeance to God by trusting that people, that is those in the church who've been seduced by Jezebel and those worshiping demons in the world, they will reap what they sow. You can trust God with that, that God is the righteous judge. And remember in time, Ahab does die. Remember in time, Jezebel gets thrown out a window, trampled by horses, eaten by dogs. It happens. Give it time. And while it may mean exile for us, it's not pleasant, I know. A spiritual drought, a spiritual famine, which I think we're seeing in the United States. A withdrawal of the spirit in our communities to produce repentance in us. Jesus will save us. Jesus will come again. I said this in my email this past week. That's where your trust ought to be. That's where your hope has got to be. In the meantime, we must take our sins seriously and we must repent. Stop looking at them. Look in the mirror. We got to remain faithful to the covenant and we got to persevere in hope. We can see that in this story. We've got to join the force of light and love and overcome evil with good. We've got to fight in prayer and trust that God will sort it all out in the end. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in the heart of the evil empire of Rome. He said, never be lacking in zeal, Romans 12. Don't lack in zeal. Zeal is good. Yeah, I had zeal, but you've got to put it in its proper context. It's got zeal that looks like Jesus. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be faithful in prayer. The voice translation says, don't slacken your faithfulness and hard work. Let your spirit be on fire. I love that, especially as it relates to this story. You know, we're not trying to set them on fire, call fire down from heaven. Let your own spirit be on fire, bubbling up, boiling over as you serve the Lord with this hope. Don't forget to rejoice. Our hope is always just around the corner. Hold up to the hard times that are coming. Devote yourselves to prayer. And then lastly, listen to what James, the brother of Jesus, said. He said, the prayer of a righteous person. Now, righteous in the New Testament, I believe, I side with N.T. right here, really means a covenant-keeping person. It doesn't mean you're just morally pure, but, but a covenant-keeping person. The prayer of a covenant-keeping person is powerful, and it's effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly, it wouldn't rain, it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years, and again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. My friends, we've got to believe in intercessory, spirit-empowered, divinely authorized, storm-the-gates-of-hell kind of prayer. We cannot let the enemy hold us hostage with fear, anxiety, dread, and doom. We must pray. We must pray with faith that he's listening and acting on our behalf. Amen. See, listen to this. And I've been living in this recently. And I'll be the first to confess. I live in my head too much. Fear looks ahead and sees Satan in the future. Darkness, evil. Faith looks ahead and sees God there. Waiting for us to trust him. And believe in his good future. No matter how dark it may get, the Lord has already won on the cross of Christ. May the Spirit help us to be people of faith. Now, real quick, before we close, this may be the longest message I've ever preached. And I appreciate you bearing with me. I felt this message in my body this week. 
This was a hard one to prepare. Here's some, here, here's some um, lessons that we need to take away from Elijah, and at least some of them that I saw. What can we learn from Elijah's story? The Ahabs and the Jezebels are still with us. They're still with us. And, and I don't just mean weak, passive men and domineering, demonic-inspired women. <laughs> but the spirits of these people. The ways in which these demonic forces are still at work. Do you see that? May God give us eyes to see it. Secondly, God has not called us to safety or success, and we might add this word in there as Americans, comfort, but to be obedient to his word and to his calling. If we're going to be faithful, we have to accept that and know that God will reward us in it, as he did Elijah. Another one, even the faithful, as we see with Elijah's story, can experience fear, anxiety, and depression. Even the faithful. You're depressed, it doesn't mean that you've done something wrong. You know, maybe if you're clinically depressed, there's some things going on there. You need to seek counseling, you need to seek medication. We, we believe in medicine and miracle. You know, God can use both. And maybe it's not a clinical thing. You're just down. You've kind of been living in the darkness. You've been living in your head like me. You've been doom scrolling too much. Whatever it is, and here you are. Know that God can say, what are you doing here? God can meet you in the cave. Will you let him meet you in the cave? Jesus has been there. We also see that God honors and exalts those who glorify him. God can send you a chariot. Oh, maybe not in a literal sense. But if you'll stay true, if you'll believe, God, it says, the word says, God exalts those who humble themselves and he humbles those who exalt themselves. Let's humble ourselves. And then lastly, as we see with all of our characters, Elijah's both a saint and a sinner. So here's some questions to reflect on. Number one, can you see yourself in Elijah? And maybe not necessarily in the person of Elijah. There is that. But somewhere in this story, where do you see yourself? Where do you see our society? Do you see the parallels? Do you see the, the, the places of connection? Number two, are you zealous for God in a culture full of idols? We see some of these idols today, sexuality, political power, wealth, technology, materialism, violence. Are you zealous for God? Do you see those things? Does it burden you? Does it, does it cause you to go to your knees to pray, to be zealous like Jesus? And then lastly, number three, how is God inviting you to trust him more with your life and with the future of the church in the future of the world. I trust that this message has spoken to you as it has spoken to me in my preparation of it. Let us pray together. Father, we're so thankful for this word. In the name of Jesus, I rebuke our fear. I call out our faith. Help us, Lord, to be zealous for you. Help us to believe that you've already given us the victory in Christ. Father, the forces of darkness seem to be coming at us like never before. Maybe it's just us. Maybe lots of generations feel that way. Whatever the truth is, we pray, God, that you would meet us in it. That you would help us to believe in you, to believe in your power, to believe in your goodness, your mercy, your grace, your ability to save Comfort us, Lord. Give us your peace today. And give us the courage to hear your voice and to respond to it. In Jesus' holy name we pray and all God's people said.